Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today, we go off campus and we talk to David Eichhorn. He is the CEO of NISA Investment Advisors, managing over $400 billion, a significant amount in pension assets. David, thank you very much for coming on the FIC Focus podcast. Uh, Ira, thanks so much for having me. So let's firstly talk about what you do about your firm. You know, like I mentioned, you have a significant amount of um, asset liability management. And I, I think it's great that we're having you on, given the stories that have come out of the UK uh, with pension plans. And and uh, and so I'd like to hit on um, some of those issues and how the U.S. is is different from uh, from other jurisdictions. But but first, tell us a little bit about NISA, what you do and uh, and and what types of money you manage. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, who would have thunk that uh, uh, LDI would be in the popular press? I would have never guessed that in my in my whole career, and it's and it's everywhere these days. So so you're right. We we manage, um, you know, a little over 400 billion in assets. We focus entirely on on institutional clients. Um, so we really only have a little over 200 clients. So we tend to deal with pretty large, sophisticated institutions. Uh, and as you point out. Uh, a big, big chunk of what we do is for pension plans and specifically U.S. corporate defined benefit plans. And, and that's a group that has been heavily invested in LDI type strategies uh, for a long time, um, at least according to pensions and investment. Uh, NISA is ranked as the largest manager of U.S. LDI strategy. So that's that's a big portion of what we do for clients. We've been doing it candidly since before LDI was an acronym that anyone ever talked about. We just referred to managing interest rate risk and, and uh, asset liability management, but it's kind of taken on a life of its own in a couple jurisdictions, as you mentioned. Um, and then the other big, and I won't go through every detail of what we do, the other uh, a large segment of what we what we offer clients are derivative overlay engagements. Some of those connect with the, the LDI strategies, but we also manage a lot of derivative overlays. Uh, again, we're, we're actually ranked the largest overlay manager. We, we don't do many things, but we tend to be kind of big in what we do. Um, but we're we are ranked the largest overlay manager. And in addition to the LDI strategies that use derivatives, we also run portable alpha type strategies, uh, um, tail risk hedging, uh, rebalancing, trend strategies, you name it, across the board. Uh, using derivative strategies. So, so let's talk a little bit about you know within within the pension environment in the United States. You have mm -hmm. you have both open plans and closed plans. So mm -hmm. pr presumably um, the closed plans have a significantly different investment uh, kind of both horizon, but also the LDI management has to be somewhat different than it is in terms of of an open plan. Um, now you know just for our, our listeners. An open plan or plans that still are taking in new participants. They still are getting in inflows from their sponsor, whether that's a union or a, or a company or whomever. Um, and then a closed plan is a plan that is not taking on new participants and and, uh, and and might not actually be taking in any additional cash assets. It's one of the reasons why uh, companies close them so they don't have to make contributions to those pension plans. So, so talk a little bit about the difference in managing money for those different types of plans and the different risks involved there. 
Perfect. You know, Ira, let me let me first, you know, caveat the answer I'm going to give here is focused on U.S. corporate pension plans. There's a lot we could discuss with respect to public pension funds, i.e. state and local municipalities and, and multi-employer union plans and so forth. Um, but I think your question is really driving at the, the the corporate DB space and specifically the difference between an open and a closed plan. As you point out, um, a closed plan, well, it's not accruing any more benefits. So, so as a result, there's, there's just a different risk profile for those plans and those fiduciaries of getting overfunded versus underfunded. That is, since the plan is closed, there's not much benefit to getting to 110 or 120 percent funded. An open plan has a way to use that surplus, right? They're accruing benefits. So, so as a result, while, while there's been a, a pretty big de-risking trend for all U.S. corporate plans, whether they be uh, open or closed, going back to Certainly PPA was a catalyst in the mid-aughts. The global financial crisis was a catalyst. Um, but closed plans are far more advanced in that, i.e. the glide path they've adopted. Glide path meaning the more well-funded they get, the more they sell risk assets, equities, et cetera, and buy bonds. And they more, more the more they adopt LDI-type hedging strategies, they're far more advanced. Um, and where many plans at this point in this stage of that life cycle have gotten into what we've kind of coined as hibernation, i.e. kind of an end state, juxtaposing it versus a termination, buying annuities from an insurance company, for example, more of an end state running off their liabilities where they may be invested. A lot of closed plans that are fully funded, 70, 80, 85% in fixed income, uh, a modest amount of equities, but really in just a runoff mode uh, at, at that stage in their life cycle. Now, Howard, obviously we're in a much different interest rate environment today than we were even a year ago or certainly a year and a half ago. Talk a little bit about what the differences are in managing LDI strategies in um, in a very low interest rate environment versus, say, I don't want to call this normal, but let's call it a, a more a higher interest rate environment, more similar to what we have today. Yeah, it feels a good question. It feels more normal if you've been around at least for a decade or two, but uh, lately it seems abnormally high. Uh, it, it's a great question. So, you know, the nice thing about, you know, interest rate hedging or LDI strategies is that they're designed to mitigate a risk. They're not a return seeking strategy. So, you know, clearly as rates were falling and folks were invested in, in LDI strategies, they were hedging liabilities by, that is, liabilities were going up. And the strategies AUM was going up as well, right? It was offsetting the the increase in the value of the liability. That's what makes the hedge. So you know, the reverse is true, which to your point of what we've been seeing in the last, call it, you know, approximately a year, interest rates rising rapidly. Therefore, there's been a decrease in the value of the liabilities, but there's been a commensurate decrease in the LDI strategies, the fixed income we run, and they're they're doing their job. They're offsetting upside and downside. Right now, they're offsetting a, a, a decrease in the liability. But a key takeaway, at least with respect to U.S. pensions, is that still the vast majority of U.S. pensions are not fully hedged. Um, there's really widespread adoption of LDI-type strategies here in the U.S., but the majority of our clients remain not fully hedged. And so as much as it sounds a little un, um, undesirable, right, if interest rates are going up, you're losing on your bonds, on your LDI strategy, but you're picking up funded status because you aren't fully hedged, all else equal. And so we've actually seen in this environment, you know, year to date, anywhere from a quarter to a third of our clients in this space have actually increased their allocation either to uh, fixed income, the LDI strategy, 
and or increase their hedge ratio as part of that. So they're taking the opportunity to hedge at a higher interest rate. Well, you mentioned that liabilities tend to you know shift when interest rates do. So you have both your assets and your liability shift. Talk a little bit about the different interest rates that are used for the discounting of liabilities mm-hmm. in a lot of these in a lot of these LDI uh, strategies and and what difference it makes depending on which uh, which particular uh, benchmark you have to use in order to in order to do your discounting sure so so in the in the corporate space um, there's a couple different uh, metrics that matter to corporations clearly you mentioned contributions that's driven by uh, rules set by the ppa um and then of course uh for financial statements the sponsor cares about how this all lands on their financial statements it i think from from your audience's perspective for u.s corporate plans you can think of both of those discount rates as effectively uh high quality corporate yield curve so you know for, for simplicity, think of it as, as double A or high single A quality corporate yields are what are what ultimately discount the value of these liabilities. So so for U.S. corporate plans, that's really their bogey. So so if, if Treasury rates are moving and spreads aren't moving at all, for example, Treasury rates going up, then then it's becoming more and more attractive to hedge all else equal. This year, we've had a little bit of both on balance, right? We've had general rates, i.e. Treasury rates increasing as well as corporate spreads, even high quality corporate spreads. They haven't moved wildly, but they're meaningfully wider year to date. So both of those represent a decrease in the liability. And again, if you're not fully hedged, either from a perspective of, of general interest rates, your treasury exposure, or from spreads, you have an opportunity to lock in uh, lock in that hedge at a, at a more attractive level, uh, thanks to the current market regime. Great. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about the differences between LDI and pension funds here in the U.S. versus, say, the U.K., which received a lot of attention in the recent past where um, you had selling of gilts that had to be done in a very significant way in in uh, the U.K., and that spilled over to a significant volatility in other financial assets, particularly sovereign bonds in, in the U.S. and, and Europe. Um, so talk a little bit about if there are similar risks to that of U.K. pension plans that might spill over here. That's a question we've gotten many times. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or, or, and if if not, why is uh, the U.S. significantly different than the U.K.? Yeah, I, I would say we are significantly different. And it, it's it's this is not a comment of American exceptionalism or, or something like that. It really is just structural market differences. And and I'd, I'd want to point out, um, you know, I'll mention some some issues that created the, the, the crisis or, or the conditions in the U.K. But, you know, from everything I've gleaned from that, I, I wouldn't suggest anything was done imprudently. Um, it, it was just a pretty extraordinary draw, really started by, uh, and I know this is outside the scope of your question, but a, a fairly maybe bizarre or shocking uh, decision on fiscal policy that the market wasn't ready for. So, so that was certainly what lit the fuse. Um, but to your question, you know, the UK, you know, has some structural differences that makes LDI inherently more levered and more at risk to this. And so specifically, you know, UK pensions tend to have durations for a whole host of reasons, inflation linking, et cetera. But the duration, the interest rate sensitivity of their liabilities tend to have a handle like about 20 years. The U.S. for a host of reasons, the typical U.S. pension, maybe it's only about 12 years in duration. And so so one dollar for dollar, there's just a lot less interest rate sensitivity uh, to begin with within the U.S. pension market. Additionally, the size of our corporate bond market relative to the pension community here in the U.S. is just so large 
Um, you know, half of what we call LDI clients at, at our shop, Ira, just use bonds. They don't use derivatives at all to manage their interest rate risk. So they just use a lot of corporates. And importantly, we have a treasury zero coupon market that doesn't really exist in the UK, which is another great way to get a lot of duration uh, that doesn't involve derivatives. So those are some big structural differences, but then add to it again for, for a number of reasons. And, and to be clear, we use derivatives on behalf of our clients and we use them with what we would argue is, is, is material and sufficient collateral behind them. You know, the UK market, the combination they use pooled vehicles, so, so a, uh, which we do not use here at NISA. So it's, you know, think of it as a collective trust that has two or three or four times turns of leverage on it. Uh, in gilts, uh, meaning you own gilts and then lever it two or three times. And importantly, the main instrument they're used for uh, uh, for LDI are cleared instruments, which that sounds like a really good thing. And going back to Dodd-Frank, right, in the U.S., that's what everybody wanted to have was cleared instruments. The challenge with that, Ira, is that cleared instruments need to be settled in cash that day or the next day. And so if you're in a pooled levered vehicle or even in a separate account, if you're using cleared instruments predominantly and you're having a shocking margin movement like they had that was not the LDI purveyor's fault, um, then you need to sell something. And the most logical thing is your most liquid, liquid asset, which would be gilts, which is what really starts that run dynamic that clearly happened in late September. Um, in the U.S., a lot, the majority of the derivatives we use allow us to post securities in kind. And so if we had a large move, even comparable to the UK's, um, we would be able to post treasury securities, not liquidate them. And that that at least avoids the LDI providers in the US being contributing to the doom cycle that seemed to occur in the UK. That's great. So let's shift a little bit here in the last five minutes or so and sure. talk a little bit about your views on the market. And, um, yeah, you know, so so talk a little bit about, you know, what what you're advising your clients to do or what you're actually doing on their behalf. You know, have, have things changed significantly as interest rates have, have moved up? And, um, and, and you know, where, where do you see the long term, um, you know, long term pension assets going? Because there's, there has been this idea that there's be this slow bleed away from defined uh, contrib uh, defined benefit plans toward defined contribution plans uh, but there's still you know trillion uh, trillion dollars uh, in defined in defined benefit plans that haven't yet shifted over or uh, or completely gone away so so maybe talk a little bit about both your market view and then where you think that LDI generally is going in the US Sure. So, so a lot there. I'll try to keep it brief in the last few minutes. Um, you know, you know, spoken like a true bond manager, but you know, for the first time in a, in a long time, I think it's easy to say you know, bond yields and bond returns look really, really attractive. Uh, but again, spoken like a bond manager. But and that's not even you know, I'll abstract away from you know, U.S. corporate pension plans. But you know, with round numbers at, at the time of, of you know this discussion. You know, you can lock in two percent real, nearly two percent real, in a in a in a plain old U.S. Treasury tip uh, for twenty years. Uh, you know, the, I think if I would have said that was likely, you know, a year ago, I would have been laughed off your show. You know, and, and probably rightfully so. So, so first thing we've seen is a renewed interest. There's been just such a palpable search for yield because of right, wrong, or indifferent the the financial repression and central bank activity for really the better part of more than a decade now. Suddenly. You don't have to search very far, right? You can you can find meaningful yield in high quality uh, instruments like U.S. Treasuries or 
you know, a lot of our clients invest in things like long corporate bonds. Well, those are, you know, bumping around yields of around 6%, you know, very, and, and, and again, high quality. So I think that's maybe if there's a market commentary, it's just, I'm not sure the world and the market has digested because it's happened so quickly, what you're able to earn on what, you know, and spoken like a bond manager on painfully simple and straightforward assets, U.S. treasuries and well, corporates. <laughs> so just interrupt you there just yeah, sure. for a second. Yeah, sure. So, so you know, the pushback that I get from that when I say, you know, we we now have the potential for return in fixed income securities, right? Whether it's, you know, 4% for 10 years or, you know, if we rally from 4% to, to 8% in 10 years, you wind up making, you know, 10 or 12%. But but the pushback that I get is, is that real yields are still incredibly low on a spot basis, right? So, you know, people still look at the 10-year treasury yield, subtract out what the last years of inflation's been. So kind of the old-fashioned way that economists do it incorrectly, but they people still look <laughs> at that and say, you know, the real yield is still negative 400 basis points, right? Negative 4%. So so is there is there a risk here that people aren't buying or, or not willing to buy fixed income because they are worried that inflation is going to remain exceptionally high uh, for, uh, you know, for the next three, four or five years? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you said it. That that that's incorrect because I don't know if I'd have had the guts to say it exactly that way. But you know, there, there's no there's no instrument save for for short end tips, right? If you buy a very short end tip, if you know whatever inflation hasn't printed yet, um, uh, will come through the tip price, right? But but save for those, you know, the fact that inflation is running high, and and we do to our view, we we have had a view it's going to remain persistent and higher. Um, really for the last year, give or take, and, and it has. Hopefully we're getting near the end of that view. I'd like to say soon I'll, I'll change my view. I'm not quite there yet. But, but I, guess, I guess my only my pushback on, on that, on, on, the, on your hypothetical pushback is, you know, there's, the fact that inflation is going to run high, that's going to eat into the return, whether it be of equities, whether it be of bonds, et cetera. And what's in the rearview mirror, well, that's already happened. And so I think looking at it as, as, well, we've had recent inflation of 8%, so I need to subtract that from a forward-looking yield on a treasury security is just the wrong way to look at it. And, 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 and it's easy for me to say, but the market puts its money where its mouth is every day, right? You know, U.S., when you look at the break-evens between U.S. tips and U.S. nominals, that's what the market is pricing in on a forward-looking basis. And, and those numbers, depending on where you are on the curve, are 2 2.5%. So there, there are ways, you know, the history of inflation has been that way. But if, if someone is worried about 8% inflation continuing materially for a while, there may be no better investment than, in that case, not nominal treasuries, to be clear, uh, uh, inflation protected uh, treasuries, because that is not priced into the market. That's where I would direct them. Right. So, so, and just to, to focus this back on my last part of, of my question about where do you see, uh, you know, pensions and LDI, generally speaking, going forward over the next 10, 20 years? Well, you know, a couple of things, you know, in the corporate space, you pointed out, there's a lot of pensions that have to be managed for years and years. And so, uh, as I point out, uh, just because they're long dated li- and long lived liabilities. So we see the U.S. LDI market is remaining a very large growth market. You know, the based on uh, a 10Ks we look at, maybe 55-ish percent of U.S. corporate plans are in fixed income, maybe 60 tops. Um, so what we see clients doing is increasingly moving still towards that hibernation state, you know, say about 80% fixed income. As an LDI manager, that's very, very attractive to us. Um, and then the other side we really haven't talked about, and I won't get into detail, but Public pension funds, you know, state and municipalities are, are almost entirely remain open. And again, for those plans, 
I can see why, given the funded status of those plans, when interest rates were, you know, 1%, 2%, the attractiveness of bonds, you know, that's a tough sell. But but given where we have, have, have uh, what we've achieved and given how they set their discount rates based on an expected return of not numbers like six and a half, seven percent 7%, I won't call it LDI because it would be managed a bit differently, but the role bonds can play relative to the liabilities in, in public pension plans, again, probably managed a bit differently. Uh, I think it's, I think we're in the first innings of, of that discussion, given where yields have moved and, and, and how quickly we've gotten here. That's lovely. That's been David Eichhorn. He's the CEO of NISA Investment Advisors. David, thanks very much for coming on FIC Focus. Ira, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And now we turn to our fun Fed fact segment with Angelo Monolatos, but we're not going to be talking about the Fed this time, Angelo. We're going to be talking a little bit about the, uh, the the Treasury refunding and the dealer question. So there was an interesting dealer question. Do you want to review for our listeners what that question uh, is? Yeah, so the Treasury has been uh, talking about uh, buybacks, um, and there was actually a charge in one of the previous refunding announcements about that so that the Treasury would actually be purchasing already outstanding debt and funding that purchase through issuing uh, uh, on the run. So either tips, I mean, sorry, yeah, T-bills are across the curve. So now they're asking about uh, how they should structure that. And uh, yeah, we've kind of uh, been, have been thinking about this question over the last couple of days and thinking about their, how their screening process, how the treasury screening process might be the size in pot- uh, potential market implications. So I think it's probably good to first maybe kind of go into the screening process that the Treasury could uh, could use for how they pick the bonds, or maybe perhaps the New York Fed will work as the fiscal agent uh, on behalf of the Treasury. So uh, I can go through the screening process if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think you know what's interesting is that the Treasury Department may actually do things a little bit differently than the Federal Reserve did during quantitative easing. Because during quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve had its own model, and it would use that model to buy bonds that were cheap to that model. But the Treasury Department isn't beholden to that same model. They they could decide just to use. Uh, the Fed's model, but if they don't want to use it, they might use something else. So, so, so maybe, maybe there, there's kind of three components that we were thinking about, Angelo, in terms of how the Treasury might design its its program. So maybe you want to go through each of those components, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, the size at the end. Yeah, for sure. So uh, the first thing we're thinking about is really isolating those dislocated bonds. So the way to do that is to look at a relative. Uh, value model here at Bloomberg, we have the GOVY function with the spline curve. So you can look at um, uh, where uh, bonds are trading versus a you know a fitted value, uh, be it using a, a cubic function or an exponential function. So that's probably the first one, looking at dislocated bonds, and then it would be bonds that are probably are, are trading at a lower dollar price, and uh, bonds that the Fed doesn't, the Federal Reserve doesn't own much of the float of. I think those three criteria probably in that order are going to be the most important probably some other criteria that they're definitely going to consider is uh they they won't buy cheapest to deliver bonds i'd be very surprised if they did and they won't buy most likely won't buy bonds that are trading special in the repurchase agreement market as well right so bonds that are trading very special in repo bonds that could be delivered into futures contracts and then uh, of course like you mentioned you know probably not uh, well they w- certainly won't be buying on their own security so importantly the way that they that this buyback program would work is we've identified now 
what bonds they might buy. So how do they fund that? And the way that they fund that is by issuing more on-the-run securities. Maybe could also increase their T-bills that that they own uh, or, or that they issue. But but I think generally speaking, they'll they'll they can uh, maybe issue another two billion dollars of you know twos, threes. Uh, Five sevens, tens, maybe a little less twenties, given what twenties have done, um, and and thirty years. But let's say that they did an extra fourteen billion dollars a month. They can then take that fourteen billion dollars and buy some of those relatively cheap bonds. Now, one of the things that people might say is, well, they're buying these bonds that have coupons of you know one percent, and they're then they're issuing coupons of four percent, say for for a ten year. Um, my, my pushback to that is that that is true, except that they're also buying those um, those bonds with a one percent coupon. Um, they're buying them back for. 85 cents on the dollar or 87 cents on the dollar. So you're, you're talking about a situation where, where yes, you're paying more interest, but you've just made 15 points on a trade, right? So, so you've actually made a capital gain and you're just, you're paying more interest over a long period of time. So I think that that's something that, that, uh, you know, there, there will be questions about as the, the treasury department does this uh, buyback program, but also one of the reasons why I think that they'll be looking for, uh, all else being equal, that they would rather have bonds at a lower dollar price than even cheap to a spline model. So, so it'll be a combination of those two factors. You know, cheap to the theoretical value plus, uh, plus also absolutely cheap. In other words, uh, just a lower dollar price. Angela, was there anything we missed in this discussion? Yeah, I think I think that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, uh, th then just since we're on the topic of dealer questions, the the other the other question is really about uh, the tips market. Um, just some fun like you know fun fed facts. So we'll kind of delve into that. So the the if you look at the historical average of what uh, in the since the inception of where tips are, so they the the share of tips as a percent of coupons and as a percent of the market might be higher than the historical average. But if you look at the post you know post uh, global financial crisis averages, uh, the the share is is quite depressed in uh, it has been rising due to you know increases uh, nominal increases to tips uh, for over the last two years. Uh, but we do anticipate that. Uh, there could potentially be uh, even more uh, tips increases here, kind of getting that share uh, closer potentially to the, um, you know, that post-global financial crisis average, uh, uh, closer towards a 9% maybe of uh, coupon treasuries. Great. Well, that was Angela Monolatos with Bloomberg Intelligence. And on behalf of him and David Eichhorn, I've been Ira Jersey. If you have any ideas for questions or comments or a show you'd like to hear about, a topic you'd like to hear us uh, discuss on the show, please let us know. You can hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. With that, until next time, be well.